random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Elliot Borenstein, author of Marvel Comics in the 1970s, The World Inside Your Head, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other tin cannon string, or other end of, even. Okay. Uh, good enough for me. I tried. One string, two cans. Not a one-take wonder, this one. <laughs> but we are joined with Eddie. An author. His name is Elliot Bornstein, and he authored, go ahead. Marvel Comics in the 1970s, available now wherever fantastic books are sold. Elliot, welcome. Thank you for having me. How long was this in the works for you to put out and, and where we're at with it now and stuff? Well, I serialized it on my blog for about a year and a half, so I think it started around 2019-2020, and now it's out. And again, available wherever books are sold, in various platforms, medias, and that kind of thing? I hope so. Okay. All right, for the marvelous. Where did it begin? Yeah, no, that was the shortest podcast on record. Man, that was a really in-depth interview. We don't do records anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Where did it all begin for you, I guess, really, with your, your affinity, love, interest for comics, and what were they? Well, when I was a, when I was very little, I have three older brothers, and two of them read comics, but not very um, devotedly, and they brought home comics, and somehow I got hooked, and I remember, the first comic I remember was an issue, a Steve Englehart issue of Captain America with uh, the Secret Empire and Moonstone, and it cost 20 cents. And I was so hooked, I immediately got an arrangement with my parents that um, my allowance could cover, I believe, four comics a week. And then for years afterwards, my allowance was indexed to the inflation rate of comic books. So as comics got more expensive, my, my allowance went up to allow me to get those four comics a week. With a little persuasion for yourself to your parents, perhaps. Oh, just a little. Just a little. Nice. That's a way to start early. And yeah, 20 cents, that was in the 70s for sure. I can recall that as well. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't bad. Even my my parents had really no disposable income whatsoever, but even for them, this was, I think, not a hardship. I, I love like now. I love hearing that in regards, by the way, and you just mentioned not, I mean, especially now, considering how it is. Yeah, I, I put back a uh, Superman book one day that I really wanted to get because it's just a random issue. Five dollars. Why the hell not? Who, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't buy that book for five dollars? But it's funny because you mentioned the uh, one of the first books you read was that Captain America, the Englehart era. And, you know, going with 1970s Marvel, especially with Cap, you can't go wrong with Englehart. You know, the original Secret Invasion and seeing how he wrote those characters and how he managed to create something that is still talked about to this day. Oh, absolutely. Of all the writers that I, I talk about in this book... Um, he's not the one necessarily closest to my heart, but he, I think, is the best superhero writer of them all. Um, and he told amazing stories and had really, really good dialogue. Like you look at uh, Englehart as well. Didn't he become a member of the Church of Satan to help his uh, writing with Doctor Strange, if I remember correctly? He he joined like something. I don't remember that. I do remember him doing a fair amount of occult research, which ended up informing his work pretty much forever, including the novels that he wrote. 
Um, mostly, I mean, the, the, the famous stories I remember is just him dropping acid and, and with um, Frank Brunner and walking around Greenwich Village and coming to go plots for Doctor Strange. That was probably enough. I don't know if he needed to join in any, any organization after that. It's kind of funny because, too, you know, once again, the uh, drug culture in Marvel Comics during that time frame, you look at, you know, Steve, uh, Jim Starlin and how, you know, one cover is literally the result of him dropping acid and looking at a overflowing of garbage outside on the street. Yeah, and I totally missed it when I was a kid. I mean, I, I, st- I talk about this as a moment in a Captain Marvel comic where um, Rick Jones is given so-called vitamin C just so he's not bored in the negative zone, and he takes it and he starts tripping balls. And I remember thinking, wow, there must be something about the negative zone that makes you metabolize vitamin C differently. No idea. <laughs> um, so all that stuff went right over my head, but it was available when my head was high enough to, to notice it. And Marvel in the 70s is a very interesting time in the sense that when you look at Marvel, it's a lot of comic fans actually going off to become pros. Whereas back in like the 1950s, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, it's a lot of, well, time to pay the bills. I'm going to become, I, I guess, a comic book artist or a comic book writer, I guess. I mean, I failed at, you know, writing for uh, th- these pulps or whatever. Whereas like this is the time frame of Roy the Boy Thomas. You have Steve Gerber. You have Steve Englehart. You have... Len Wein and people like that and they're just like no I love this stuff this is in my blood and I want to go on and become a comic book creator it must have been so strange for that old guard to meet these young people who actually wanted to do the stuff that they were stuck with right or they made they made their best out of but really had never had any career aspirations and here these people are coming in and this is all they wanted to do and they did it and you know you look at like people like Roy Thomas especially with his love of comics and like you know, we've we've had encounters with Roy over the years, and I remember hearing a story about how like he will literally go, you know, during a comic convention and just join in with random fans and just BS with them about comics at the dinner table. So that is amazing, and it's not that, it's not surprising. No, no, it isn't. But that that's someone who really comes out of fan culture in a way that I can admire from a distance. But I never socialized fans, never went to cons or anything like that. Um, but it seems like an amazing experience for the people who. Who, had, who spent their formative years doing it. And in regards to a lot of these you know, people that would go on from fandom into becoming professionals, were there any like stories that you read about these creators going in, trying to break in, that seemed really, really interesting compared to the others? Hmm. I have to think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. I mean... I'm sort of moved by Steve Gerber's desperation, you know, coming, coming out of college, moved to New York, working on Madison Avenue, and just being so miserable that he writes Story Thomas and says, please, please give me a job, right? Um, because um, the alternative was the, this corporate world that, that he wanted nothing to do with. But, you know, to be honest, um, I mean, I, I, I read as much of the stuff as I can find, but in my book, I'm not, I'm not spending so much time on the, the, career, the biographical and historical side. I mean, Sean Howe does that so well. Um, I feel no need to to do anything like that. Um, So I really, I don't know that many of these anecdotes. Now, in regards to Marvel in the 1970s, it's a much more creatively freeing time, too, because you look at the era beforehand, you know, where Stan the Man is going off doing his thing and helping create this world. You have a lot of these guys, though, that, again, you know, as we say earlier, they are are a part of the fandom, and now they have their opportunity to, you know, play around in the Marvel playpen, or playpen and just do their own thing. And, you know, it's, it is a very unique time. And I feel like what works best about this era is the creative freeness of it all. And were there any runs during this time, you know, like looking through that 
exemplify that theory or that belief? Well, pretty much anything Steve Gerber did, right? Um, he got away with so much on Man Thing and Howard the Duck. You know, he could have a, um, a basically proto manosphere Viking going around killing people who aren't manly enough. And in Howard the Duck and in Defender, he, he could have some random um, elf with a gun shooting people with no explanation that even he he could come up with. It was just some sort of random thing. Um, so yeah, the the stuff they got away with, I think, largely because. One, they were most of them were all fans, and they all a lot of them came from the counterculture. And two, um, they were just unsupervised. They were so unsupervised compared to what would happen later under under Jim Shooter uh, that there was no, there basically was no grown up minding the store. And that um, I think that had a downside to them as a corporation, but um, and also led to you know a, a lot of mediocre comics. But it, it left room for people to do really amazing things. But you've also got uh, some regulation, if you will, with the uh, Comics Code Authority, no? Sure. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> that's, that's in but place that, there, yeah. That is in place, but, you know, that's a structure. Um, <laughs> of course it has to be enforced, but it's a structure that's also kind of internalized, right? So if, if someone's going to push against the Comics Code, they know what they're pushing against, and they know they're doing something that might actually get someone's attention or get them in trouble. Um, but this is different from having an editor who simply says, no, I don't want, it has nothing to do with the Comics Code. I don't want you to do this. I want you to do that. Um, and that really wasn't a big thing in the 70s like it was in the 80s and really ever after. I think the concept of micromanaging hadn't been developed yet, so there. Not brought there anyway, no. Yeah, no. Right, exactly. I just want to back up a second, Elliot, and from Captain America you're discovering in the 70s where to go from there and how to get to the point where you wrote this book. You know, anything else before that, leading up to that? Well, what what happened was I would I was reading Marvel and DC, anything to get my hands on, and, and for me, reading comics was really a discovery about um, authorship and voice, because after a while I'd noticed, well, it was easy to notice which art I liked better. That was, you know, that's right in front of me. I mean, it did help me develop some, you know, visual skills that otherwise I wouldn't have because I'm not a very visual person. But very quickly I learned, I, I learned to read the credit boxes. And, you know, if it's, if it's Gerber or Engelhart, then I'm probably going to like it. If it's Bill Mantlo, you know, who knows? Um, and so it taught me to look for the names and to think about who the people are um, behind all of this. And so I would start reading things by a lot of stuff by Doug Mensch and a lot of stuff by, by the people I've already mentioned. Um, and um, that's, that was very formative for me. I mean, when I, you know, I went on to get a, a PhD in literature and I think um, those habits really started with comics. I think also too, you couldn't help in my case as well, reading starting in the seventies comics, you couldn't help but see these names, the way they were boldly splattered across the front page or whatnot. Just like, and tell me, don't tell me you didn't, because I, I, I might have to call you a little bit of a fibber. Read, even though you saw it every issue, at the top of that top that cover page, that front page, the origin of the character. Yeah, I would read that a lot. After a while, I'd kind of get done with it. Um, but yeah, those, those, those little artifacts are kind of amazing. And when I teach comics, when I teach stuff from the 70s, I always have to explain, yeah, this is really cheesy, or they had this because they had to do this every issue, and they had to reintroduce all the characters. All of these things that, um, without the context of what was going on in the industry, um, just seem really odd right now. You don't have them anymore. But yeah, and I also, what I also always read was um, those little advertisements at the bottom of each page, yeah. which would tell you like what's going on in this upcoming issue of The Avengers. And it would take you out of the story. It was really kind of awful, but I would always read them. Because they were there, and it's just like, okay, you're absorbing more stuff. I, I totally get that, yeah. And then at some point, they get they did away with that. Yeah. So I think Matt Fraction brought them back for a run on Defenders or something. It was really, 
Stiglitz fraction. It sounds like something fraction would do um, several years ago, and it's just kind of funny to see them um, in the 21st century. When it comes to the a lot of the uh, creators during that time frame, I feel like one of the most experimental and most unique is Steve Gerber. And, you know, you obviously the go-to one, which in my opinion still holds up incredibly well to this day, is his Howard the Duck. And I feel like the biggest downside of everything was once he left, the character lost its voice as, you know, and it never recovered truly from there. Oh, I completely agree. Although finally when Chip Zdarsky took over, I actually liked it. But yeah. for... For decades, um, it was all, and it wasn't the same as Gerber, but that was okay. Um, I think people, well, this was such a personal comic, and I feel like Howard the Duck was a vehicle not just for Gerber's perspective, but also for his voice. And the people who came after him, particularly Mantlo when he took over, you know, um, what a miserable assignment, right? Take over Howard the Duck in mid-storyline from, from Steve Gerber. Um, what they saw was a lot of these stories had superhero parodies in them. So, that's, so they, they took that as the thing that you do with Howard the Duck. Let's put a duck in, in an Iron Man costume. Isn't that hilarious? And actually, it's not. Um, and it's something that Gerber did, I think, probably rather cannily in order to get some attention, but it was never really what the story was about. Um, the plots were always an excuse just to, to riff on things, really. Um, and um, without all of that, you have things like, you know, Howard leading teams of people to fight interdimensional zombies. This is just crazy. It's just not... Um, it's it's not even an interesting use of the character. So it took a long time for someone to come along and really try to see how it is as, as something personal and not just um, a kind of visual joke. Well, when it comes to Howard with the Zdarsky run, the way I see it is it's not trying to be its own, you know, it's not trying to mimic or be similar to the uh, Gerber run. It's It's trying to be its own unique thing. And I like that more about that. I feel like, you know, Zdarsky does his own voice for his own thing. Like, He's a big fan of the Andesenti Daredevil. However, he's still trying to make his Daredevil what it is, you know? And following in the you know, the footsteps of giants such as Steve Gerber, like, there's no way he can mimic what it is. Especially, you know, with how Marvel is now in regards to their uh structure of how they create their books. They really don't go after, you know, the topics at hand and he just wanted to do his own thing, and I like that. I appreciate that way more. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Zdarsky is someone who, who also has a, a, his own voice and perspective. And in a sense, if, if in any way he's imitating Steve Gerber, he's imitating Steve Gerber by being himself. Yeah. Um, and, and not by just trying to copy a whole bunch of beats. Um, and there's just something about Zdarsky's sensibility that works really well with Howard. But again, he's the first person I've seen um, who, who um, really meshed with, with, with this character since Gerber's death. When it came to that run, though, of uh, Gerber's Howard the Duck... There's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't see in another book, and the biggest one for me is the writer's block issue, where <laughs> it is one of the one of my personal favorite comics I've ever read to the point where it it's accurate about the whole concept of the writer's block and what you know problems persist as a result of that. No, that was an amazing issue, um, and it's it's great that it came as a result of Gerber's chronic lateness, right? I and mean, Gerber was one of the worst offenders when it came to. Um, Maintenance of his books, we've been planning what the next issue was, and he was driving across the country to move, and so he didn't have the issue ready. And instead of doing a, a reprint, or God forbid, having someone else to sort of write an inventory script, he, he did this thing, which was just a whole bunch of essays illustrated by a bunch of illustrators, and that was um, really amazing. In that issue, he did something that was so self-indulgent and could have been so terrible, 
Um, and I've seen a whole bunch of self-indulgent comics. I mean, most of the time when, when the writer brings himself into the comic, it's god-awful. Um, but what he did there was, was truly incredible. He isolated a whole bunch of cliches. Um, he really got at what it means to be a comic reader, and he really, really um, explored, explored the, the, the things that haunt him so much. And, and I think it still holds up. Elliot, with this book being in the 70s, has there been anyone who's done just a certain decade of Marvel before? Not, well, yes, yes. Actually, um, Tomorrow's Press um, has these um, books, the sort of magazine size. I actually didn't see them before I wrote this book. Um, one is actually called Marvel Comics in the 1970s. One's called Marvel Comics in the 1980s. I can find the writer in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they are, they're useful but they're a completely different thing in that they go through month by month and they do these sort of capsule, not even reviews, but discussions of individual issues. Um, and so that's, I, I'm, I'm writing more Marvel stuff now, and that's been very useful to me. I disagree with this guy on just about everything, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's a really useful resource. I just think because it's tomorrow's press, I mean, I should, I mean, I feel bad that I didn't know it before, before I wrote my book. Um, it's kind of, it was easy to miss. But in terms of like a, um, a book that's published you know, that circulates in bookstores or however you want to think of it, then I'm not aware of people doing this, uh, the decade approach. So then this, to me, begs the question, would there be, whether it's by yourself or anybody else, to do Marvel Comics in the 1960s, the 80s, the 90s? Well, the funny thing is, 60s, not, not for me, because I just can't, I'd have to look at it really hard. I enjoyed writing my chapter on it, but I really hate reading Stan Lee. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's really painful for me. Um, but I've actually started writing Marvel Comics in the 1980s, um, mm-hmm. and I joke that my that I could be done with Marvel Comics in the 1990s very quickly by just publishing a, a vomit emoji. Um, that's really not fair. There's some good stuff, um, but I'm but I never expected. This is t- typical comic stuff. I never expected to be doing a sequel, and I'm already doing it. But I'm really enjoying it. Well, I was going to ask you in regards to the uh, 90s one. Would you do it as a uh a uh, foil cover? Or would you be doing a glow in the dark? Would you be doing you know a little cheesecake <laughs> variant? I would I would basically be doing a um, a, a death of Borenstein tie-in, um, and um, and I would dare people to to make sure that they never even opened up the packaging because the the value would deplete. Would the cover be you uh, crouched down, you know, in the style of Spider-Man number one, and in the corner it says uh, a Todd McFarlane homage? I really want to just have a venom tongue sticking out of my face. That's fair. But in regards to, you know, the 1970s, one of the names that, you know, to the point where he was parodied by Steve Gerber in his book, you know, friend of the show, Don McGregor, it's it's very interesting seeing his style of writing, especially considering what that era is. It's, you know, in a lot of ways, like regardless of anything, comic books are designed for kids, but you have this guy coming along, putting in the most verbose and most thought-provoking intellectual comics in the realm of superhero cape stuff. And, you know, he's doing his thing, and it's kind of cool to see. Yeah, absolutely. The funny thing is, since I was so young, I discovered McGregor because I was reading Marvel Team-Up and Killwave and guest starred, and I started reading Killwave, and I was completely blown away. I didn't read the Luke Cage stuff because I, I the art turned me off. Um, I've read it recently, since then, and and, um, and I didn't read Jungle Action at the time because it was called Jungle Action. It didn't, I didn't understand that it was going to be something so good. But I read Kill Raven, and I was completely taken away 
by his the lyricism of his writing, particularly that last issue um, about uh, Morning Prey. And yes, it is easy to parody him for the purple prose and um, for going a bit overboard, but that, but that's with his his captions and his description. His dialogue actually can be really tiffy and lively and fun. Um, so it's a it's it's quite the contrast. He's I, I think McGregor is never given enough credit for his sense of humor um, because everything else seems to be so much more important. But but um, a lot of his comics are really funny um, at moments, even if there's so much drama going on. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice, or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. How then, Elliot, is... Marvel Comics in the 70s broken down? How do you segment it? So what I do, I'm actually thinking about this now as I'm, I'm writing the 80s book. Um, instead of trying to just cover everything and talk about what happened and make sure I've talked about um, you know, all, all the books people are reading, I was just guided by you know, what are the things that I think are really interesting and remain interesting to this day, even if they're sort of flawed. Um, and so that's how I picked my my five writers, uh, Mensch, Engelhardt, McGregor, Gerber, and, and Wolfman, the Wolfman only for Tomb, Tomb of Dracula. Um, and I just did it as a writer-centered thing, acknowledging, of course, that, um, that that's privileging writers over artists, but I think for these particular comics, with the exception of Killraven and a couple other things, it really was um, so explicitly writer-driven. Um, so um, also the 70s, the great thing about the 70s is how incoherent a decade it was, just in general, and in Marvel in particular, I don't feel like there's anything lost by not giving the narrative of what was happening in Marvel Comics in the 1970s because everything was happening in Marvel Comics in the 1970s. So you may as well just focus on what, what seems worthwhile. Are you taking the same approach then for the uh, 80s version? And what's the timeline on, on getting that one done? Well, that's a little bit different because I've just started, I, I wrote a chapter on X and I've gone back and I've started introduction. And for that one, I feel like I have to talk about the context there because one of the things I'm trying to argue, I think, is that, um, again, I don't want to spend time just trashing 80s comics I don't like, um, so that's not what I'm doing. But the big change, of course, is Jim Shooter, and um, I'm thinking about the question, you know, what makes a comic good? And it's easy to trash Shooter for you know, his, you know, all the horrible things he did and for, um, for the incredible corporate style. But in a sense, what the answer that Shooter is giving about you know, what comics are for and what is a good comic is, is about comics as a product, which sounds, you know, that sounds... Um, corporate and capitalist and all that, but it's also you know a fact of something on the market, and um, so I, I want to start out talking about how what Shooter does is um, he get he you know excludes a lot of the really exciting innovative stuff with the exception of you know, you know some things in the imprints and um, and X Men and Daredevil, um, but he does raise the the average quality of mediocre Marvel significantly, 
Um, he get he comes up with a a much better middle product um, than Marvel in the '70s did. Marvel in the '70s was just way. If you look at it as some sort of statistical graph, it's all over the place. Marvel in the '80s, you know, it was kind of like DC had been. You know what you're getting, um, and there can be a value to that. But mostly, then after that, and talking about the inference they come up with, I do want to focus on particular runs. Um, like Miller's Daredevil, perhaps Burns' Fantastic Four, and Simonson's um, Simonson's uh, Thor, but also I want to talk, I want to talk about James and Matisse and, and uh, Moonshadow and and the Thunders and how he's someone who, you know, really for me can be hit or miss, but when he's great, he's absolutely amazing, and he comes out of this this eighties milieu and so influenced by Steve Gerben by the seventies. And of course, you have so, the iconic um, uh, you know run during the nineteen eighties of US One. You have uh, the Mother <laughs> Teresa comic. Just all so many great stories. You Team know. America. Them too. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. There's crap, but it's produced. <laughs> it's produced. That, I can't. I find it unreadable. But um, the production quality is just it. It, it all kind of flows. As, yeah, this is kind of like that too. No, there's huge misses. Huge mistakes that that shooter makes, but on the main on the main superhero line, it's um, I don't love it at all. But it's I think a step up in kind of average quality. And who can um, forget but, the iconic run of Alf? Okay, okay, fine. Well, obviously you can't. <laughs> hey, <laughs> no, no. The, the, the diversification of the imprints is also really interesting. I I sound like I'm trying to defend Jim Shooter in the 1980s, and I'm not. I'm, I'm bending over backwards not to make it something just about how terrible Shooter was. I find it much more interesting to think of like what could be, you know, what possible value there was in what he did. Well, I mean, if you insult Jim Shooter, all 19 feet of him are going to come over, you know, and hit you. He's a very know, large man, is what I'm getting at. I, I, yeah. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. He's probably one of the, and, and he started his he started his career so young. He's probably one of like two years older than me. He could probably beat me up. <laughs> and it's funny too because like during that time frame, like you mentioned, like that era of Marvel. You know, I say some of the superhero stuff can be a little lacking. And you know, one of the biggest ones for me when I read Spider Man when I was going through there, it's very unremarkable with the exception of maybe one or two story arcs. Like you have the uh, Craven's Last Hunt, of course, that's iconic. You have the death oh, yeah. of Gene DeWolf. That's, again, iconic. And a little bit of the Todster bud, you know, where he is on there with David Michelini. But otherwise, mm-hmm. and, you know, the uh, the boy who loves Spider-Man. Yeah. No. Spider-Man, I, yeah, I don't think Spider-Man in the 80s on the whole was a great thing, but I don't think it was a great thing in the 70s either. Oh, um, that's, that's interesting moments. to say. I mean, I, I, I like what, what, what Jerry Conway did. It was all right, but then um, when he was gone, I mean, I find everything, everything after he leaves for the next several years to be really forgettable. See, that's where I, unfortunately, like I, I vehemently disagree. I respectfully right. and vehemently disagree, but it's Go like ahead. there's that time frame. Like I feel like Marvel in the '70s with Spidey is very, very solid. Like at least from a visual standpoint, I will say that because like yeah. you have creators like. Keith Ballard coming on board doing the cover art. Mm-hmm. You have Gil Kane mm-hmm. working on the interiors. And, of course, jazzy uh, John Romita Sr. And I'm trying to think. There, there's there's a lot. like, But I get where you're coming from in terms of story. Like, there's not much in terms of substance. Because this is also, you know, concurrently with the one step above reading the uh, ingredients on the back of a box of cereal with Spidey Super Stories and, oh my God! Yeah. Oh, I I do want to get my hands on a recent issue though, where I just saw the cover of somebody on uh, Blue Sky posted it of uh, what's it called, the Star Wars parody where Darth Vader is portrayed by Doctor Doom, and I'm like, well, 
At least we're acknowledging it. But, <laughs> you know, like I'm seeing, you know, yeah. covers like that. And it's a very, again, a very, very unremarkable run of Spidey. But it's like, mm-hmm. and by the way, I don't know if you can tell I'm a very big Spider-Man fan. I'm actually. I, I, I respect that. <laughs> it's, I, I do. It's funny because like in regards to uh, that era of Spider-Man, again, it's. I don't. I think like one of the run, one of the characters that has a very, or one of the groups of characters that is a very iconic '70s, is the Avengers. And yeah. like, there's a lot of really memorable, you know, Avengers stories. That's the time of the Kree Scroll War. That's the time of uh, the Kov- or Korvac saga. Korvac. Korvac. Yeah, which was Shooter. Yeah. And again, yeah, and it's like, it's funny because like. Say what you will about Shooter, but like there are some damn fine stories with him with the uh, the Avengers at least. Although Secret Wars, eh. no, Secret Wars is terrible. But on the whole, he's a good writer. I mean, he's, he 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 wrote a lot of good Avengers stories, and also when he came back too in the eighties, um, and, and you know, excellent Legion stories. Um, so no, this is not, this is not a hack by any means. Yeah. Um, yeah, and of course you have the Engelhart. Um, Engelhart seventies too. No, I think that was, a, that was a very good period for the Avengers. I agree. Marvel in the seventies is also very solid when it comes to you know, as we've discussed, you know, with Engelhart with the occult. Like Doctor Strange is like some of the most memorable era of the character, and it's you know when you see like you know non uh, Gen Z posting it, but like saying like here are some of the best Doctor Strange stories, and the yeah. the, the uh, Frank Bruner run that era totally. is always you know acknowledged and respected, whereas you know like. There, there's some good Doctor Strange stuff every once in a while, but like 1990s onward, it's like very eh, hit or miss. Like you got the Oath, you got the uh, Donny Cates yeah. run, some of the Mark Wade run, and then otherwise it's just like Doctor Strange. I mean, I think Doctor Strange has gotten better in the, in the 21st century. You know, after Engelhart left, it was really kind of a wasteland for for years. Oh, you come know? On. I read Roy, all of it. Roy I the Boys run. Okay. What, hmm? about, what about Roy the Boys run in uh, the 1990s, where it's just yeah. certainly a book. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I guess it had its moments. But um, sure. I like the Marshall Rogers stuff for the Rogers Stern, in the, um, I guess, in the 80s, you know, in the early 80s. But um, I don't think after Engelhart for a long time, I don't think any, anyone, actually, Rogers Stern had a bit of a handle, but for the most part, people didn't have a strong handle on what to do with him. They just kept trying different things and nothing really stuck. Um, and that, that's probably one of the reasons why he kept getting canceled and rebooted. I actually kind of like the Peter Gillis stuff. But it's um, it's not wonderful, but it's, it's interesting. I think Marvel Comics in the 1970s and the follow-up in the 1980s are going to be uh, very interesting. I'm very um, excited about both of them, to be honest with you, Elliot. Uh, with oh, the you. 80s, you're welcome. With the 80s, I also discovered the offshoot Marvel <laughs> title, of, and that's Epic. Would you include any titles, characters from Epic in the 1980s volume? I I will be, um, in, in particular, Moonshadow. Um, Jam the Matisse, I work with, with John J. Muth and, um, your name. Um, it's terrible, but, um, that was originally an epic run. I'm looking at, I'm trying to figure, there are going to be a couple other epic things, but I want, I want to talk about the imprints as, um, you know, looking backwards historically, I guess I do have some historical interest in you know, how Marvel is trying these things that end up not becoming vertigo, you know, not becoming these great successes, um, and uh, producing some interesting things along the way, but for, for whatever reason, um, not, not, you know, lasting the duration. Um, but Epic did, give, Epic did give the opportunity for some, some really good things, but I think if you, I was actually looking at a list of all the Epic comics published just yesterday, and there were not that many that I feel like really, really hold up. 
it, it's funny though with Epic because one of the biggest stories of all time, and it, it's re, it's considered reprints, but you have Akira, you know, with Joe Duffy's translations, the gorgeous computer yeah. coloring, you know, which is was yeah. state of the art ahead of its time with the uh, I think it's us, uh, Olive uh, doing the uh, coloring on there. Mm-hmm. And just the fact of having manga available that was. That was radical. That was amazing. Um, they also re- republished my favorite, one of my favorite graphic novels of the 1970s that everybody forgets, which is The Sacred and the Profane by um, Modern Stacy, which is just an incredible um, short novel about um, space exploration by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's out of, been out of print for ages, and I teach it in my class, and I'm just so glad that um, Epic revived it for a little while. What is it called again? The Sacred and the Profane. The Sacred and the Profane. It was originally serialized in Star Reach. Do you remember Star Reach? Vaguely, at best, remembering that, but Star Reach was um, called some ground level comics. It was basically kind of Eclipse before Eclipse, but with just lots and lots of bare breasts because that's what you did in the seventies. Um, and it had people like Starlin and Brenner working on it, and they serialized this novel, The Sacred and the Profane, um, which was about um, a Catholic expedition to space, um, trying to track down the signal from intelligent life and the disaster that it ran into. But it's um, unlike anything. I'd ever seen before or really since. Um, and I just feel it never gets the attention that it really deserves. Come to think of it, since it was published by Epic, maybe I can give it some attention. <laughs> well, when I think Epic, like I mentioned in the 80s, I discovered Epic. I think the first title I knew of under that name was Dreadstar. Oh, yes. Yes, I was a huge Starlin fan. Yeah. 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 And then when you mentioned we started at the beginning of this with Englehart, the first thing I associated with him, to me, was another epic character. I think it was Coyote. Oh, yes. Yes. Coyote started out as, a, as an Eclipse character. He did a... Um, mm-hmm. he, uh, Coyote was serialized in Eclipse magazine, then collected, and then as black and white, and then the um, Eclipse did the color series of the Steve Lelohars. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because like you look at Epic as a... You know, it's... It, in my opinion, Epic was uh, Marvel's Vertigo. And like not many mm-hmm. people, you know, you know, it's like Marvel gave up on it and then tried to do their own thing in regards to other stuff. Like at one point, Ghost Rider, you know, the uh, what's it called? The uh, Danny Ketch early 1990s Ghost Rider. Oh, yeah. That was considered their idea of what Vertigo could be. And swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is, yeah, I, I could feel if it could have become something like Vertigo. Um, except that, you know, it didn't do the, the talent outreach that Vertigo did, you know, thanks with the British invasion. But also the thing about Vertigo, and there's this wonderful book, I'm trying to remember the author, she's, she's amazing, that just came up about Vertigo this past year. Um, Vert, for all the different things it did, Vertigo created a really interesting niche of um, kind of, of works that mostly is not about the DC universe, mostly not about superheroes, but adjacent enough to it that someone who likes the stuff but has, more, has grown up and has more sophisticated taste could really enjoy and i feel like as much as you know I, i've grown up a marvel fan and, and even when i'm not reading comics marvel comics are the comics that i'm not reading i feel like vertigo if, if, if someone were trying to market comics directly to me it was as if vertigo did it you know they mm-hmm. they really found they found this 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 niche that was adult and interesting um and challenging but not too challenging like some very sophisticated art comics um and um for the most part was not dependent on all the kind of dross that you have in 50 years or 70 years of superhero comics. They really got it right. Isn't it funny that Vertigo was something that was highly beloved by so many people and then DC just slowly 
but surely took it out in the back put the gun to its head and then never again and you know we've we've had different interpretations of what vertigo could be we've had the uh my personal favorite was DC's Young Animals, uh, headed by my chemical oh. romances Gerard Way, which could have been good. something special. And then they're just like, nah, we're going to get rid of that in favor of uh, DC Black Label. And Black, yep. La- Black Label is something. It's certainly mm-hmm. something. You know, they, yeah. they, try, they try and make something unique and different. And then they immediately go, well, we're going to, you know, go for the more adult kind of thing and we'll have... Uh, Batman show uh, the Batwing and then yeah. you have Dan DiDio coming along saying oh no 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 we can't do that we can't show that kind of stuff but I thought this was the mature thing and it's, it's a duo. Right. I mean I think the, the thing about Black Label that is one of the things that's different from Vertigo and I think is, a, is either a mistake or just lamentable um, is that Black Label is, from what I can tell is it's you know more adult takes on, on traditional DCIP um, and Vertigo had some of that, but Vertigo had much more room for experimentation. Um, but I think Vertigo, the writing was on the wall for Vertigo, um, really, I mean, I'm not sure if I have the timeline right, but kind of when, when Paul Levitz left, right? I mean, this, this, I think the same impulse that led them to do um, before Watchmen and um, integrate Dr. Manhattan into the DC Universe, all that horrible, horrible stuff, and, and decide, we, you know, I thought we'd alienated Alan Moore enough, let's alienate him some more. Um, that to me is very similar to is is all part of parcel to um, to abandoning the vertigo sens- um, sensibility, which in many ways came out of Alan Moore, even if he didn't write for it. One last point, Elliot, with respect to Epic, and that is, I do think of a lot of I don't know four or six issue miniseries associated mm-hmm. with them. Yeah, um, I think the first I ever encountered was six from Sirius. Yes, um, yes, and and also some uh, graphic novels as well. Yeah, I think Void no, Indigo absolutely. is one. Yeah, well, would oh, that Void be, Indigo? Yeah, yeah. Now, would that be part of your '80s? Uh, you know, writing like, for example, I think that was the dawn or the age, or really a lot of uh, graphic novels came out during that decade. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about what Marvel was doing and thought it was doing with its graphic novel line, which again was a mix of like, let's have you know the Vault and not the Avengers, um, <laughs> and let's have something um, completely different. Um, I think Void Indigo. I mean. Void Indigo was kind of the death knell for some for um, some experimentation because it was so it was um, so castigated for the graphic violence of the and and yet you know ten fifteen years later you have Garth Ennis and um, who would have noticed um, but no I, I want to I'll be talking about that probably less in terms of individual graphic novels um, than in terms of what Marvel was doing um, because again it's an interesting set of successes and failures that stopped. What would you say, Elliot, is your time frame for getting Marvel Comics in the 1980s done? I'll probably finish a draft in about a year. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go back and uh, get that. We'll talk to you about that one. But as, That's wonderful. As far as this... Put me on the calendar. Yeah, as far as this, again, Marvel Comics in the 1970s, is there a uh, tour, so to speak, to go along with this, book signings uh, and stuff? Uh, wouldn't that be nice? No, there's just... Um, well, it's just funny, I'm... I'm I'm, you know, I'm an academic. We get no attention for our books, and this is like my seventh book, and, I, and I'm not touring or anything. But I'm getting so much more um, notice for this than than all of my Russian books combined. So it's kind of fun. But um, no, it's just lots of fun talking to people in podcasts and, and stuff like that. That's been incredibly satisfying. Saves on travel too. 
It certainly does. It's funny, too, because, like, I found out about this book through uh, Mark of the Band Toadies and, you know, friend of the show, and it's one of those, like, I've wanted to check this out for a little while, so it's nice to see a love of uh, an era that, you know, not many people are really talking about. Like, you know, you have... uh, famed foot fetishist Rob Liefeld going on talking about, you know, Marvel in the 1970s. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of acknowledgement, but also just like, there isn't much talk about it, you know? And it's kind of no. cool to see that this time frame that so many people love the hell out of is finally getting its just due because like you look at the Marvel cinematic universe and how things are created in that. There's a lot of love for Marvel in the 1970s. Obviously a lot of stuff is, borrowing nods and you know cues from like current creators like uh famed chart lover uh jonathan hickman and famed famed graph paper lover jonathan hickman uh (laughs) just a lot of really cool stuff seeing that and i feel like there are stories that they could utilize and borrow elements from from the 1970s and they could be going for decades you know they could and i what makes me happiest about all that frankly is just seeing um seeing Don McGregor get get his due for the first time, I think, pretty much ever. Um, and, you know, watching him on Facebook, he's clearly enjoying this, and he should. This is um, the idea that someone like him writing these comics that didn't sell very well and not respected by, by the um, leaders of Marvel and really kind of um, put on the margins of the industry sometimes can now, later in life, be celebrated as, as um, one of the prime movers of one of the most popular um, parts of, of the MCU. That is just really, really gratifying. A big shout-out, by the way, to Don. Uh, you can check in our archive. The uh, East Coast Comic Con, RIP for East Coast Comic Con, mm-hmm. the panel that I got mm-hmm. to conduct with Don at East Coast Comic Con in 2019, the final East Coast Comic Con. And mm-hmm. he's very passionate about talking about that run you know, of Jungle Action and also just what he was able to get away with and what he did yeah. and, you know, the backlash that, you know, the Marvel editorial at the time gave him for it. And it's funny because... All of that stuff, like, at one point, he was, you know, vilified in the Marvel offices. Like, he shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be doing that. And now you have Penguin releasing the Black Panther run in the, you know, the classics format. And, that you know, in the same thing where you have On the Road, where you have Pride and Prejudice, and his Black Panther is now among those. It's kind of cool to see. Yeah, if people had been placing bets, I certainly would have lost that one. But I'm I'm very glad to have lost it. Again, the book is Marvel Comics in the 1970s. Elliot Bornstein, thank you very much for talking about this, and we really look forward to getting our hands on them and reading it all up and down. Thank you so much. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Elliot Bornstein. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Obsessed with Marvel, the Elliot Bornstein edition. Thanks for hanging around. Question number 2156 reads, Richards, what kind of supernatural being is Satana? Is it demon, sorceress, succubus, or vampiris? Succubus. Peter. What he said. What he said? I was tending to think sorceress myself, see, see, but I, then I, I said, I, I don't know, Satana, I, I'd demon. like to know, you know, I'd like to have my own copy of this, but every single time I want to get a copy of it because it's a Rocket Raccoon first appearance, I'm like, eh, I should buy it. Oh, 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 $200? <laughs> That's cute. Let's go with Elliot's answer, C, Succubus. And 
That is correct. C for correct. I like it. Good start. Strong start. Knew right away. Didn't even have to repeat the question a second time, which is just a normal thing. Some people would say. All right, let's back it up to question number 1400 and turn the page. Thank you, Bob Seeger. Bob Seeger. Turn the page. Insert solo sax here. Eddie. 1400. Oh, he said sax. Da 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 da. Uh -huh. Question 1400 reads Who was Dr. August Hopper? Choices are the gen engineer, Meccano. Mm. The porcupine or the locust? This is a deep-cut villain, I think. Who was Dr. August Hopper? The gen engineer, Meccano, the porcupine, or the locust? I'm going to go with porcupine. Choice E, Abraham's the pruder. Well, huh? <laughs> see uh, again. Yeah, yeah. we're going to go see. All right, let's try it again. Let us see. Here we go. No, the answer is Abraham's the pruder. Is D, the locust. A locust. Oh, man, that is a deep cut. I think the porcupine and mechano are the only names I actually recognize, but not, rad to know, racer. not to know their, their <laughs> aliases or whatever. So let's back it up again. We're just happy to be going in that general direction. The numbers are declining, and maybe our answer rate will probably. hold up. He's probably follow suit. <laughs> 575. It's the gibbon. Here we get The gibbon. <laughs> gibbon. Spider-Man villain, I think. Um, 575, what is Flash Thompson's real first name? Eugene. It. Eugene. Okay, Fred, Thomas, Eugene, or Horace? We're going with Eugene. Again, letter C. Here we go. It's correct. Okay, two out of three. Ain't bad, babe. Good Me song. Meatloaf. Yep. Okay. Let's press no, on. No, I think we're having uh, burgers tonight. We, ba -da 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 -da. And we still go backwards on these numbers. This and I is still just go to the well with the same dumb jokes. Kind of odd. Yes, you do. That's Thank you. End, and that's the end of my TED Talk. And How dare you, sir? That's what he did. You do. You just do almost every episode. It's almost like we have recurring bits on the show. Question four, two, three. Which superhero team has Spider-Man never joined? Well, he's joined the Avengers, so we know do that. Well, just wait. Defenders, Fantastic Four, Avengers... Or New Warriors? Gosh, I'm going to go with New Warriors. I think it's Defenders. Defenders, Fantastic Four, Avengers, New Warriors. Which superhero team has Spider-Man never joined? I feel like he was in one issue of Defenders. I'm guessing issue 61. I think he was but, in... Um, the I don't know if I can't determine I think he was in uh, New Warriors because that's also, you know, a uh, Mark Bagley joint. And he, mm -hmm. and also, also, uh, what's his name? Uh, Derek Robertson, who did a lot of stuff on uh, Spidey 2 in the 90s. I'm thinking more. He, old for, he was old for New Warriors, though. You'd be surprised, he though. Yeah. He, was just, he was married to a supermodel. What's he doing in New Warriors? I feel like, though, in the 1970s, you have the uh, new, you have the Defenders, and you have, you know, with Howard Thuduk, you have. Uh, Valkyrie, yeah. Hulk, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer. So we're between Defenders and New Warriors again. What Man, were the I, answers? I'm going with Defenders on this one. It's got to be. You're going. And and Ellie, you're saying New Warriors. New Warriors. Let me throw something else in there because I have, among other things, to read the first run of New Warriors. But there was a second run, and was there a different <sighs> lineup somewhat? He's young at heart. That's the thing. That's like, and I'm making a joke, but it's also like he. He kind of would, I could see him jumping in there. Like Fabian loves writing Spider-Man whenever he gets the chance. True, it's true. But I mean, he was kind of that's the oldest Spider-Man's ever been in a way, right? With that era, yeah. Um, married to supermodel, hundred clones, Aunt May finally dying for a while. 
All right, so we have one Defenders and one for New Warriors, and I have the button to push. I'm going to go with... Uh, I don't like, think I even saw him on the cover of either one. <laughs> it feels <laughs> like doesn't Defenders. Help me. It feels like Defenders. All right, I'm going to take Peter's side and yeah. go with A, Defenders. So, no, wow. the answer is New Warriors. Wow. <laughs> but Fabian, I'm going to give him a text. <laughs> Man, how come you... <laughs> All right, do we try to? That's not a tiebreaker here. Just but text Fabian, what the hell, man? One, more, one more for the road, I guess. Uh, let's go up now. Finally, one thousand two, three six. Turns out one, NFL two, Super Pro was a member of all of them. <laughs> one two three six. Okay, what is unusual about Chambers' appearance? Jeez, oh, I remember this character in a. Uh, Let's say they did a Nightcrawler, they did a Rogue, they did a like a four-issue, a Cyclops individual. Chamber was one of them. The left side of his... no jaw. Do what? He had no jaw. No jaw. Let's see if that's right. The left side of his body is scarred. The right side of his head is missing. The lower half of his face and part of his chest are missing. Or half of his body is organic metal. What's this character's name? Chamber. Chamber. I'm going to yeah. disqualify myself from no, this, no. so that way... So that you can find what the right answer is. Yeah, because I want to see what he looks like. <laughs> oh, oh. He, he has, like, a flame for the bottom of his head, of his face. His name is Jono. He was in Generation <laughs> X. Um, I think he was dead for a while, like all of them. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of a rough life. I'm not going to... So, like I said, I'm disqualifying myself from this one. I'm looking at the picture of the character, and all I'm going to say is... Uh, What's your mama? I've seen the... Char- They're doing a figure of him, apparently, I think, in uh, Marvel Legends, so... It's an interesting one. It's kind of on par with that uh, that what's his name figure, the uh, cannonball, which was always hilarious because you can make him do a little finger puppet. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, again, wow. I remember now. I thought of the series. It was called Icons, and Chamber was one of them. Yeah, as well as like I said, the other ones, Rogue and Nightcrawler, and I love Cyclops. Yeah, Rouge is yep. one of my favorite X Men characters. But I just saw it and I said, oh, okay, I'll get this. But of course, never read it yet. So what are we going with? Uh, let me read them again. The left side of his body is scarred. The right side of his head is missing. The lower half of his face and part of his chest are missing, or half his body is organic metal. Elliot. See, when his, pow- when, see, when his powers first manifested, they blew up um, the, the lower part of his head and his chest, and that's why he's nothing but flame there. So once again, let us see. Let's give it a shot. And yes, okay, that's correct. I think we should leave it there and come away with uh, not too much scarring on our part. Thank you again, Elliot. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun.